Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. All aboard Drive-by Cinema. This is episode 12. We're about to depart. The film is Snowpiercer. Your Ticketmaster will be Paul. Hi everybody, I'm your Ticketmaster for this journey into the icy tundra of today's showing, which is Snowpiercer. And my co-host Richard will be driving our locomotive through this drive-by experience. Welcome and hop aboard. I'm doing a bit of a train theme, have you noticed, Paul? I don't know whether you can guess why. Because you're on a train? No, but we're about to be on a virtual train. A virtual train Ah. going around the world. Non-stop. Forever. Non-stop. A train that never, never stops moving. Yeah, because what did we watch this week? We watched Snowpiercer, is that right? Snowpiercer, exactly. A very, very, very exciting trip around the world, non-stop, after the world has kind of ended. It would be one way to summarise this badly. Can you summarise it in a better way than me, Richard? Please. Hmm. Well, there's a lot to say about this film, isn't there? I mean, it's an adaptation of a French graphic novel. Novel. Of a French graphic <laughs> novel. I think in, in French its title is Le, Le Transpersonnage. What on earth does that mean? I think it means Snowpiercer. Well, neige is snow, isn't it, in French? Ah, it is. I, I feel I should be excited by your information, Richard, but I'm not somehow. Oh. There's a slight sense of anticlimax there. Well, maybe you're not interested in French as a language. No, it's just, is it a particularly noteworthy graphic novel that we're, that we're watching the movie adaptation of today? Well, it's inspired this movie, and it's also inspired a television series. They're not the same stories. They're different stories, but they're set in the same timeline. Right. They're all, they've all got the same basic concept. Can I just say, there's, there, there, there are some, because we are still stuck in the middle of lockdown, there are some lockdown themes and some, you know, there's a lockdown vibe once more in our movie. This time, it's not so much being confined alone. It's rather like students currently around the UK are being locked down en masse. And this is a theme here of this train journey. It's a train journey from which the passengers cannot escape. And they are kept at very close and grubby quarters. So if you're locked down in a student hall at the moment, this is maybe a movie to vibe out to and to get some... uh, some solace from, I imagine. The students in the tail of our train, yes. Yes. So a, a train with a very, very specific and explicit class system. That's really exactly what this film and the graphic novel is all about, isn't it? It's a literal linear stratification of society. Political science. Yes. We do have a little bit of listener feedback to handle, you know. Oh, wow. Good. Okay, let's move on to listener feedback. Is it our esteemed friend Alistair who wants to speak to us this week? Well, Alistair did Hi, inform Alistair. me of an interesting point. He was talking about, this time about, last week's movie, which was Io, or Destination Io. Io, yes. Io. And he's talking about... Papa, really, Io. Eo. Sorry. Now, the actress who played the lead character there, Margaret Qualley, she has an interesting parent. She plays the budding semi-qualified biologist of a famous botanist's father. Yeah. Now, did her face remind you of anyone? It did. And who did it remind you of? I'm not telling you. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it didn't particularly remind me of anybody, to be honest, no. Oh, well, she's apparently, according to Alistair, uh, Andy McDowell's daughter. Wow, from Cheers? No, not from Cheers. Where was Andy McDowell from? Frasier? No. (laughs) Oh, God. That's a long time ago. Well, there's a weird connection here, because in last week's episode, when we were complaining about everyone's love of the very long... Us? Complain? (laughs) No, our listeners were complaining about about the fact that we didn't pay any attention to the long tracking shots in The Vast of Night. We did not, no. You referenced Robert Altman. And his work in Shortcuts, did you not? I did. Well, Andy McDowell was in Very Shortcuts. Very famous panning shots that lasted for seven minutes. She was. But what else was she in? Like, because she was a big name at some point, wasn't she? Groundhog Day? Yes, Groundhog Day. Yeah. But she wasn't in LA Law or 30-something. Sadly. That's, thank you. Thank you, listeners, for that uh, esteemed tidbit, tidbit of movie trivia. That was very useful. And also, thanks to some listener feedback, I moved the release time 
of the last episode so that Marcus Yay. could listen to it whilst he was he's returned to work from furlough and wanting something to occupy him, I think. Apart from work. So that was very nice. Uh, he said some nice things about us. So I thought it was worth uh, just moving the release. Thank you, Marcus. Out. But he was also a big fan of The Vast of Night, unaccountably. I don't understand. Wow. So it, it seems that we, 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 we stand alone uh, in our opinions on Vast of Night. It, it does seem to be a movie that nearly everybody loves. I can't explain it. Paul, do we have any corrections? We do. We do. First correction, I, I think when we're talking about The Vast of Night, uh, I was talking about the way that 1950s kids kind of had a free run of the communal and civil spaces in their small towns. And I said they moved from basketball to drive-by seamlessly. So <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I did mean they moved from the basketball court to the drive-through cinema seamlessly. Maybe to drive-by would be better, you know. It's a drive-in cinema. It's a drive-in oh. cinema, not drive-through. I'm sorry. No, drive-through is what because we do with fast food, yeah. Okay. Drive-by, drive-in. drive-through drive cinema would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get it right at some point. But it would be nice, actually, for 1950s kids to move from basketball court via lynching to, to a drive-by situation. I think that's a movie that has yet to be made, but I await it with... Uh, with uh, with anticipation. The other correction is I did apologise for being rampantly sexist in episode number one. Uh, I think that was a mistake. I'd like to retract that apology. So you stand by your sexism proudly. <laughs> no, I don't believe I was sexist. No. So, uh, because mostly my Twitter account has been reactivated, that's the main reason for not apologising anymore. Okay. Those are the only corrections I have to make. Thank you. Yeah. We've been sitting on this train now for quite some time. We still haven't left the station, but I think I'm hearing the musical sting that will announce that we are pulling away. Tickets, please. Thank you very much. All (laughs) aboard. Welcome to Snowpiercer. Well, uh, what can we say about this movie, Richard? Shall we just get into the atmosphere straight away? Look, everybody's on board this train. Why are they on board this train and why can't they get off and why can't it stop? Can you answer any of those questions for, for us? I can. I can. So the story is a very topical one. At a point in time, actually, I think a couple of years ago now, the story goes, the governments of the world had recognised the problem of global warming and someone clever has devised a special chemical I think it's called CW7. About uh, three years ago now in our timeline, they would have released this substance in the atmosphere and it's going to cool the Earth down. The only problem is it was too effective and it has turned the entire globe into a frozen snowball planet. Oh no. So what are we going to do? Has it already died? Incapable of supporting life. I think nearly everybody has died. Nearly everybody has died. But fortunately, a lucky group of people managed to board the world's first like intercontinental cruise train. The cruise train, yeah. Called the Snowpiercer. So this guy, I don't, presumably very rich industrialist Tycoon. guy called Wilford, he's built this uh, railway track that goes all around the world. And he's got this luxury train, very long, uh, exciting train, that his guests go on board and they just ride around this railway track, like like the world's biggest train set. Yes. Fortunately, this is now an ark, a haven for humanity, because in the freezing cold conditions, it can survive. It just keeps moving, just keeps on. Why, why can't they stop for a pit stop? I don't understand why they must continue, apart from plot. That's not really expressly explained, is it? I mean, I don't think there's anywhere to stop. Okay. I see. I mean, there's no there's no stations with people waiting to re, you know to come on board with a a trolley of sandwiches and Mars bars, is there? So there's no point stopping. All they eat is a weird kind of agar jelly, uh, which is very strong, a very very good source of protein. And we later find out that it's made from locusts or some such cockroaches. Sure, oh, cockroaches. Okay, yeah. So the people at the back in third class, you know, that all they survive on is this weird agar jelly. Which doesn't look that unappetizing. It looks quite nice. I mean, do you remember the 1960s when jellies were seen as a delicacy? It wasn't just desserts one had with jelly. You know, you do your spam and you cover it in jelly. Or you do your chicken and you cover it in three litres of, you know, jelly. Maybe you never had that as a child. (laughs) I think we missed it or too young for it. But yeah, I mean, gelatine is a highly concentrated source source of nutrition, particularly rich in protein. 
And insects would be a very valuable source of protein, especially in some kind of global climate catastrophe. They may be one of the few animals that survive that, that we might be able to eat, say. Yeah. So so they're on the train, they can't get off. In order to stop rioting and whatnot happening, there's a very clear class divide, first class, uh, economy class, and uh, freeloaders, of whom the majority of the passengers, the majority of the passengers are freeloaders, and they're all stuck in the back uh, under whip and chain. Before we go into the story, though, in detail here, Paul, I think yeah. just talk about the guy who did this film, because it's a, a, a really fashionable up-and-coming director called, uh, he's a Korean guy, called Bong Joon-ho. Yes. Are you familiar with any of his other work? I, I'm familiar. He's done two other famous two other famous things, but I can't remember what they are. Well, he did pa- uh, Parasite, which yeah. is a Korean language film, but it's got very wide international appeal. Yeah. It's really good. Have you seen it? I have seen that one, yeah. yeah. And he did, he did a Korean kind of horror monster movie, I think, called The Host as well. Have not and seen that. I think that I one. might have seen parts of that wow. one. Well, I think I'm going to have a look at more of his stuff. Yeah, on the, on the back of this, because I've liked everything I've I've see, seen him do. Yeah, I, what I would say is what what I liked about this was the kind of very casual bilingualism in it. You know, it was mostly in English, about eighty to ninety percent in English. But there were, you know, it, there were some other languages that just occurred naturally in it, and I thought that was that was you know maybe the fact that he wasn't Hollywood centric, and uh, I, I'd like that. That's a nice development. Is films that. F- flip fluidly between languages without really stating their position on it. And I like that a lot. The director, Bong, Bong Joon-ho, do you, would I use, which name would you use for him? It's complicated with Koreans, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. do you know the answer to that question? Well, do you want to call him by his patronymic name or by his, by his first name, so to speak? But what would you call him if you, he was your friend? Joon-ho, I think. Joon-ho, okay. Well, Joon-ho found this graphic novel uh, I think when he was working on another film, actually, and uh-huh. he decided that he'd like to make a film out of it, which is quite visionary. I think it's potentially a difficult thing to try and film. It's a very high concept idea, and as you say, it's really a it's about political science. It's a, a direct stratification of society. So we start off at the tail end, where a bunch of people who didn't really have tickets, I think they were kind of stowaways on the train, and managed to get on board as it was leaving are hanging out in squalor. And as you work your way toward the engine of the train, you go up through society, you know, into into sort of artisans and labourers and stuff with skills through to people that are just partying and having nightclubs and spending time in jacuzzis and stuff until, you know, you get to the guy at the top. Who is the guy at the top? So you might say, why doesn't the guy at the top, there being no no rest of society left, why, why doesn't he just throw the ingrates at back uh, off the train? And he could well do, but obviously there's a suggestion that uh, there's a useful exploitation of the hordes at the back that uh, serves other class interests. So I think it's quite an explicit statement about the interrelation, interdependency, and therefore exploitation that occurs between classes in society. But what's, it's a very rigidly, rigidly structured society, obviously, because they're in a train and they can't escape. Uh, and the boss, the you know, the train driver, as it transpires, uh, the train engine maker, I guess. Wilford. Wilford, the man whose dream this train is. Uh, he has a hench man or hench lady uh, called Mason, uh, who's played by... A- Tilda Swinton. Yes. And she does a great kind of job channeling like Hyacinth Bucket and Nora Batty. I was going to say she's channeling Pauline from League of Gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, more than that, I think she's tra- channeling Thora Heard. When Thora Heard used to do documentaries on BBC Two about how great Morecambe used to be in its heyday. And she's really channeling <laughs> a certain sort of nonconformist northern strong lady uh, of a certain era and age who has very committed ideas about how society should be run and that everybody has their place in society. Okay. But I think she does a sterling job as an actress. We'll get on to that in a second. So pretty much in the first 10 minutes, you know, we have a bit of rabble-rousing at the back and Mason comes forward to quell whatever's going on. In the meantime, we find out that uh, the potential revolutionaries at the back of the train are receiving secret messages in the agar jelly. Okay. Yeah, someone is putting these little uh, capsules with rolled up messages into the gel bars that they're having to eat. Sorry, it's a sealed train, so where are these messages coming from? Yeah, 
Well, I didn't understand how they knew that the little kid who winds up with the bar with the message in, how did they know he had the one bar that had the message in? Yeah, so there's there's one bar, and uh, it's among thousands. Obviously, it's just to avoid detection. And uh, there's one bar in the agar jelly that, uh, that that has the message in. I don't know. Maybe they maybe they say we're going to position it, you know, like on a chessboard, like position H three. But in any case, he nicks the hmm. he nicks the wrong the wrong the wrong piece of jelly, and they can't get it back for him. And because of this, there's a kerfuffle and scuffle, and that's why Mason is sent in to quell the little riot that goes on. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. No, you know you got you've got that wrong. The reason that Mason ends up coming in is there is a riot, but it's because they they arrive the to take two children. Yeah. Yes, they take two children out of the the tail end, and the father of one of the children taken is quite angry and gets Andrew. Uh, you know he attacks yeah. some of the guards. Ultimately, pays a terrible price because they make him shove his hand, his arm, through the side of the train into the freezing cold conditions outside until his arm is frozen and then they smash his arm with a hammer which is quite an unpleasant thing to see actually this is where mason foot makes her first opinion uh first appearance and lectures lectures them like a rather stern methodist minister and she says this is not a shoe <laughs> patently holding a shoe and i love this it was do you remember the surrealist artist uh, yeah. who said this is not a sh- this is not a pipe <laughs> This is not a pipe by Magritte. Magritte. It, yeah, isn't that Magritte? I, I thought, wow, it's yeah. it was, it was a very surreal moment where she's plainly holding a shoe. She said, "This is not a shoe because somebody's thrown a shoe at her face, I think, or something like that." She said, "This is rebellion." Yes, that's okay. right. Okay, everybody must stay in their place. <laughs> so I think, she, as, as the villain of the piece, she's she's really good, and definitely now you mention it, channeling Pauline from the League of Gentlemen. The sex bot count in this movie is not high. Not high, no. But in a way, everything is the other way around here, isn't it? It's people are the machine on this train. These people are being used, though they don't know it yet. These people are being used as part of the machine. As part of the machine, yeah. Yeah. So John Hurt plays Gandalf in this movie. (laughs) No, sorry. Gilliam. John Hurt plays Gilliam. Named after Terry Gilliam. Because the filmmaker, because there's a lot of shades of Brazil in some of the way that society is depicted here, isn't there? Not the country, the film Brazil. So already at the beginning of the movie, it's very clearly set out. John Hurt is the leader of the underdogs, and they're planning a way to get to the front of the train. Uh, there are three critical gates that open at the same time that would uh, lead to access to all areas, and they're only open for four seconds. And the question posed is. Question posed not to the audience but to each other, to the to, to the other actors in the movie is how do we jam the doors open? Because we control the engine, then we control the world. So that's set up in, initially in the movie. It's quite clear what the aim of the movie is, uh, and this is a statement again of the means of production. You know, the engine is the means of production in this world, and that's what they want to do is to take control of it. So how would you keep those doors open? Well, the answer is that you have Captain America on your side, isn't it? <laughs> this is. Chris Evans playing the hero. Well, is he a hero? Well, we could come back to that one. But Chris Evans, and not that Chris Evans. Now, I know you're thinking, wow, that guy's done really well since his time on Piccadilly Radio. Top gear. Different Chris Chris Evans. This is the Captain America Chris Evans that we've come to know and love in the Avengers movies, who is now going to lead the poor and unwashed from the tail end of the train. Yes, he's going to lead Les Miserables to the front of the train to kill Wilford, the Rockefeller-style magnet or tycoon that owns and runs the train. Now, in terms of means of production and a revolution of an industrial scale, and the idea of controlling the means of production is is lordworthy, I think. But, uh, I mean, isn't it easier to break a system than to make a system? Easy, yeah, absolutely. But everyone also understands it would seem that they rely on this uh, train to stay alive, so Precisely, they don't yeah, break it. Yeah. That's unthinkable, Paul. I think. I think uh, advice I could give to them is find Fred, and Fred is the man in the factory that knows that button, which I guess is the override button. But there's, there's always one guy in the factory that knows all the buttons. There's always a Fred in a factory, so but they don't decide to find Fred. They do later find him, but he's in prison. Yes, they do. Uh, they do find Fred. Yeah. 
I was going to say that they they know that they're going for that guy because they know that the Korean guy in the prison drawer <laughs> is Fred. Yeah, can open all the doors of the train. Sure. So there is a Fred a security on the train. Expert. Yeah. There's a Fred on the train, and they do find Fred. So I take back what I say. In terms of revolutionary action, the Leninist tactic of revolutionary defeatism is obviously a better tactic, which is to break the system initially rather than make a new system they should have thrown a few spanners in that works and broken that train down i think would have been a better strategy but no they want to get to the front of the train they want to keep all doors open at the time i was thinking of various strategies the one they come up with is actually the best they roll a long barrel all the way down a long tube all the way down the train and it blocks all the doors and conveniently they can crawl through the, the the barrel and get to the other end without being hit by people so yeah good solution really better than what i thought of and they're aided by the fact that the guards at this point don't have any bullets in their rifles because previous uprisings had caused them to run out of ammunition. And they're making a point all the way through this movie about how scarce and precious some of the resources are. Not necessarily consumables, but the things that go wrong, things that need repairing. But this is also an area of the weakest science as well, isn't it? Because, you know, a railway... It's not just the engine on the rails. It's the whole system, no. the network. It's the track and the points, everything. You know, a, a, an engine can't run just with the people on board the train. It requires people tending the track and doing the points and putting the what, the ballast down on the sleepers and stuff. You can't you can't expect to run on a train forever, especially with landslides and avalanches and ice forming and stuff. But Wilford does have a very, very effective PA, uh, an attractive, slightly plump young lady in a very bright yellow coat. And she arrives at this point to measure up the children and take them away into, into the front of the train, obviously to, to, to the outrage and protests of their parents. Well, that sparks the riot, doesn't it? And they make their way to the prison car and get their security expert out. Now, he's played by another actor from, the, from Parasite, yeah, so the security expert in the prison drawer and his daughter, they're both addicts of this substance called chrono. Chronol. And apparently it's some kind of industrial waste byproduct and it gets you high. And they are mad keen on it. And every time they open one of these doors, they demand the chronol from Captain America, who's got a pile of it that he got from a junkie. So can we just backtrack five minutes, okay, to when, when the lady in the yellow court coat takes off the little kids obviously one of the fathers is, is remonstrating strongly about his his son being taken away and his name is andrew the, the father and of course andrew is made an example of they have a special sort of a seal to the out of the outside of the train which is presumably very approaching absolute zero i mean you're assuming a very low temperature there i don't think there's yeah even any suggestion in the film that it's that long it's that i don't think it is that cold no he had his arm out there for seven minutes. Seven they minutes. actually looked it up in a special book, didn't they? And it must depend on where they are, because presumably it's hotter or colder in different areas of the world. The whole premise for this is not completely out of the question, right? I mean, there have been times in Earth's past where... Well, we all know there are, there are ice ages fairly regularly, where ice encroaches to more and more southerly latitudes. And uh, quite apart from the regular ice ages there have been periods of even more severe cold i think at least one anyway where basically the whole world was completely you know ice bound partly the cause of that is a feedback loop a positive feedback loop that occurs if you have more and more land that ends up with snow and ice coverage it reflects more and more more and more solar radiation yeah which means that it's, it gets colder, and so more ice forms, so there's less radiation absorbed, and so on. So you get a feedback loop. You know, if all of these different factors that can affect the global climate combine, you get an ice age or a very severe kind of ice over effect that can last for thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of years. So the, the idea that you might trigger a tipping point... Tipping point, yeah. It's not out of the question. But you, you make a good point, yeah, when you get to tipping points and edge effects... Things become un- uncontrollable and positive or, or wild positive feedback uh, loops can occur to lead to sudden transitions. And we may well be on the cusp of one of these at the moment in, in, in our own experience, do you not think? It's, it's very hard to say that we're not. 
the premise of the film then and the the freezing over is perfectly plausible. Yeah. But what about the train itself? Do you buy the train? Like, how long do you think that train is? And how many people do you think are on it? Well, in the first shot, for the first hour, the the only external view you get is of about 20 carriages, which is not very much. But towards the end of the movie, we do see a very, very long train indeed, maybe 200 carriages, just for a second or two. So it's a big, big, long train. Interesting. Are Are you talking about the end where... Spoiler alert, it's crashing. Yeah. Or the bit where they're going around that loop, that curve, and he's shooting from one part of the train to the other. The bit where they're going around the loop, I think you only see about 20 or 30 carriages. So the interesting thing is, in the graphic novel and in the television program, famously, Snowpiercer is 1,001 carriages long. Wow. Which is, that's enormous. Whereas the director of this film chose the train to be 60 carriages long. Ah, and he planned it all out. You know, there's a diagram somewhere where you drew how long this train wow. was. Now, 60 carriages is certainly very, very long for um, a passenger train. Not necessarily unthinkably long for freight trains. You know, there are some very, very long freight trains put together, you know, in real life. Maybe not out of the question. I think the longest train ever was about 600 carriages, maybe 700 carriages. Really? And it ended up being about seven, seven or eight kilometers long. No way. And it required, I, I think it had eight engines, engines. on it dispersed wow. through the length of the train. Okay. Because the problem is, you know, if you have one train at the front, yeah. then you've got the couplings between the carriages, I've got to deal with all of that dynamic mass as they're accelerating and stuff. And as you can imagine, uh, over the length of over such an enormous length, the couplings would have to be so strong. Whereas if you put engines along the route, you know, you don't need yeah. to be pulling all of that mass by, by one single motive unit. Yes. So that's the first thing. That's some shonky science. There's a bit of shonky mathematics. They do say the track is 438,000 kilometers long and they, they go around exactly once a year. That implies a speed of around 50 kilometers an hour. Yes. But when you look at the train in the movie, it's going a lot, lot yes. faster than that. I think that's okay because... I think we can infer that there are places or parts of the track where they have to go slower. Okay. And so 50 kilometers is only an average speed. I buy that, but there's a bigger problem with that mathematics, right? Yeah. Which is they claim that the tra- that the track is 430,000 kilometers long. That's right. But the circumference of the Earth itself is... Do you happen to know? <laughs> Well, not that much, but I think the idea is they do it in a circuitous route, don't they? They they loop around a bit. They go to every continent, so they have to go around the the world several sure. times. Sure, true, but the Earth's circumference is forty thousand kilometers, so they go around ten times. It's much much longer than yeah. me. Yeah, so it is a very wiggly route. In fact, I've got a graphic with the route map. <laughs> you haven't? How did you get that? Well, you've really done your homework, unlike I have. Unlike I haven't, sorry. It was shown in the film, Paul. So it's not that clever of me. Oh, okay. Here we go. Wow. It's on your Zoom now. So so surely it is wiggly. But do you think that is 10 times longer than the circumference of the Earth? No, uh, that's about 100,000 kilometres. Yeah, uh, maybe 200,000. At a push. But it's certainly, no, it can't be more than that. I mean, it's got a fractal dimension, we must assume. But I just don't think you get that. That's bigger difference. But you do go everywhere, though, don't you? Let's see. You think you go through France, of course, up through Scandinavia, and then through the northern parts of Russia. It's going to be very cold across that top bit. Crossing the Bering Sea, Bering Straits, or whatever it's called, into Alaska. And then across northern Canada. Again, would be totally icebound even for us, usually, wouldn't it? Richard, you're kind and of stealing... Over the top, I don't know what... You're stealing a start on what I do, which is to describe... Things that should be graph in a graphic medium through through audio. <laughs> I thought I had a copyright on doing this. So they go everywhere, basically. Do they go to Antarctica? It doesn't go to uh, Australasia or Antarctica, no. Most of Southeast Asia is, is missed out, isn't it? There's several boss levels they've got to get through on this train. And I think they get to boss level two, which is when they open all the, all the doors, access all areas. And here comes Grey, one of the characters. And he does that weird thing. He does a score, cork, He does a parkour corkscrew he runs on the ground then he runs on the windows and with the velocity he runs up on the ceiling and goes over the head of the guard who's standing in the door but you know i don't think he had enough rotational energy to keep him up there 
It just didn't look very believable, unless you have like gravity-defying sort of uh, magnet shoes on. I, I don't know how he did that p- particularly. Well, he's very athletic, isn't he? He's a great character, Gray. I like that. And he kind of sacrifices himself, doesn't he, to save Captain America in the sauna later on. Uh, he does, but yeah. I think, yeah, he was cool. Okay, so they get past boss level two or three, and and then they find out that it is Paul that makes the agar jelly from cockroaches. So that's a revelation, and they're really angry about that. And, and there's a guy called Curtis, who's a court artist, and he 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 he's like he's drawing their experiences, and they say to him, "Do not draw this, whatever you do." As if cockroaches were the worst thing that has happened. It transpires that they all have terrible histories on the train, and cockroaches are not the worst thing that has happened on the train. Well, the interesting thing about that artist is those drawings were done by one of the artists of the original graphic novel. Oh wow! Yeah, so it all links up. That is that is cool. So, would you would you like to be on this kind of train as a paying passenger? I would because I really like the villain, the 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 sub villain. The little hench lady called Mason. I thought it's really, really good acting from 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 what's her name? Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. Well, you Loved got the it. wrong end of the stick here, really, Paul. I wasn't really asking if you would want to be on Snowpiercer itself, but oh. imagine there was an intercontinental cruise train. Yes, where you could go and spend some time. I adore trains. A holiday. Yeah. Does I that would. appeal to you? Yes. Well, you know, I, I take a four-hour train. To my monthly meetings at work, when you know when work was physical and not not remote, and I, I choose to do it by train rather than two hour two hour plane journey because it's just it's just a pleasanter way to travel, and you can do some work whilst you're doing it, and you can go for a stroll kind of thing, you know. So I, I think it is a pleasanter way to travel than either driving or taking the plane. Is there an aquarium though, or no? Can you get a shave in a, a train compartment? No, now aquarium. They- no jacuzzis. No nightclub. They do have a live aquarium on this on this uh, train, don't they? Which feeds on Snowpiercer. Feeds the first class, potentially economy class, with sushi. So they've got past boss level one or two, two or three, and at this point, Mason reappears. Not time, not this time, holding a shoe, but holding a fish. And I expected to say this is not a fish, but she doesn't. She guts it and threatens them and say this is this is going to happen to you. You know, her surrealist eloquence does not continue through the movie. She becomes a little bit nastier. Now, I read an interesting story about that fish scene. Yeah. Because it does it does strike as a bit weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Seems a little bit mannered and out of place and odd. And apparently, it seems a bit Sicilian. The story goes that Weinstein didn't like that scene and wanted uh, the director to take it out. Uh, mm-hmm. But the director spanned this story about his dad being a fisherman or something, and that this was an important scene, had to stay in. And Weinstein was, you know, as a family guy, you know, he relented and let it pass. But the director said, actually, you just made it up, it's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> right. So at this point, Mason, the the little boss gimp, uh, it suffers an assassination attempt, which is failed. Uh, and she has a good line at this point. She says, my friend, you suffer from the misplaced optimism of the doomed. 74% of you must die. <laughs> Which I thought was very perfunctory, uh, very <laughs> but cruel at the same time. So, I mean, I think we're halfway through the movie at this point. You know, we've got to first class or very nearby. There's been lots of attacks and counterattacks from the defenders and the attackers. Uh, they get halfway up the train and then the bosses stooges decide to sort of get heavy with it, you know. It, it all turns into Altamont Free Festival, and uh, the Hells Angels turn up and start killing people kind of thing. So, yeah. I, well, it transpires that they do have bullets. They That's do the have thing, weapons. They have automatic machine guns. Yeah. They pull out the ammunition, yeah. and they start shooting everybody. Yeah, so at this point, it turns on a sixpence. You know, you you were going to... At this point, I think, as, a, as watching the movie, you assumed that steady progress was going to was going to be made up the train, and there weren't going to be any particular twists until we met the boss. But no. I mean, Mason and her cunning, she's been hiding machine guns in all places. The kindergarten teacher that teaches the posh kids on the train, she's got one concealed. Who would have thought about that? Yeah, they have this strange ritual with eggs, don't they, to celebrate the new year, (laughs) passing a certain bridge at the new year. Yeah. And they pass all these eggs around. And of course, there's a secret message in one of them somehow for Captain America. It, it says, I think it says blood or something, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And he yeah. realises they're all going to get shot. And they nearly do all die in the sauna shortly after that scene. In the kindergarten, they pass through the kindergarten carriage. And at this point, the propaganda that's going on, 
the the trained driver, Wilford, is he called? You know, he's 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 assumed the role of almost a deity. That whole experience kind of reminded me of working for Disney, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, yeah, quite similar. There's something quite similar that goes on in Disney in terms of how Walt Disney's early experiences are made into some sort of, are made into a kind of martyrdom when his uh, his copyright for his early cartoons was ignored by larger and stronger entities in Hollywood. He was kind of left penniless for a while. It was almost like a Romulus, a Romulus creator myth that, that is sort of created around him in the company and, and is honoured in a, in, a, in a kind of, I won't say creepy way, in a way that isn't necessarily in touch with the reality of, of how, how his company started. And I thought there are some echoes of that here. I'd say it's a creepy way. Absolutely creepy. Well, you know, you, you're quite right. There is a lot of sort of uh, worship of Wilford, the man behind the train that keeps everyone alive. His logo is everywhere, right? They've got those phones behind those W panels, the Wilford panels. That's and I, I, you right, know, yeah, I yeah. wanted to say something about about those those logos and the reasons behind them because I wanted to use the phrase logo motive locomotive or <laughs> the locomotive <laughs> logo motif. Can you say it twice though? <laughs> Difficult. That's a real tongue twister. It's at this point in the movie that there is a Game of Thrones multiple execution styly extravaganza and kind of everybody dies apart from a few people and it's wonderful. There's an amazing slug out. Uh, the the <laughs> black mother of the kid that's been uh, uh, kidnapped as a cartwheeling assassin, I think called Grey. Somebody else, you know, lots of the guards get killed and everybody dies. And the Korean guy who can open locks only survives by hiding in the by hiding in the sauna behind a fat lady. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, and John Hurt so, has died by now as well. If you're going to hide in a sauna, please choose a plump person to hide behind. It's a great takeaway from this movie. But after this. The train performs a very tight arc in its track, such that the front of the train, you know, has already turned, snaked its way back, and is heading the opposite direction to the back of the train. So we and we see this from the outside. So it, uh, we see that the train is pretty long. You say sixty carriages, but this is the moment for the shootout, isn't it? They can shoot across the track to the train up ahead. That's right. That's right. The evil assassin guy is shooting his assault rifle from one carriage to the other one. Uh, but I thought it was a bit of a waste of ammo to try and shoot all that way, especially from Captain America with his submachine gun. I don't think it was a very good use of his resources there. He didn't achieve anything. They just broke the window. So I think at this point, nearly everybody dies, don't they? Apart from uh, the Korean guy, the locksmith, the lockpicker, and his daughter, and somebody else. Some kid, yeah, that's been abduct- abducted. And it's those four of them up in the front engine room with the train driver, with Wilford, yeah, and his assistant. And that's it. It's a Wizard of Oz moment, isn't it? It's a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory moment. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, It moment. is Wizard of Oz, yeah. Well, it's also, I think it's also a little bit like The Matrix, isn't it? But yeah. Wilford basically reveals that he's looking for someone to take over his position. He's getting old, and he knows he won't be able to do this forever. And he's identified this chap. And what's the shock revelation? The shock revelation is that he's using these kids he's abducting. Because of a part has worn out, he has to put a person into a part of the machinery to <laughs> scoop some goop out of a, you know, a manifold. And he's using these kids because they can fit their hands in there. And they've all got this action that they've been showing, haven't they, where you shove your hand in and pull it out with some stuff in it. So the real life umpa Yeah, it gets back to this idea. He's turning these people into parts of his machine just to keep the engine running. And he's suggesting that this is a trade-off worth paying. There's a lot of stuff about trade-offs, right? I think we're asked to accept that for the greater good, we have to trade off, you know, the lives yeah. of these children yeah. who get put in the machine. Actually, there's no sense in which we're led to think that they don't survive or they aren't okay. No. It just happens to be maybe a shitty job. They're quite emaciated, though, when we see them, aren't they? Yeah, but I'm sure they're going to get fed steaks, aren't they, by Wilford in his uh, dining room, surely. They're not not going to be eating those protein blocks up there. Oh, because he loves kids anyway, yeah. Mm, Yeah, I'm not sure about that. So we're asked to accept that it's an acceptable trade-off that you put these kids to work to keep the engine running. And you also learn that way back in the in the tail of the train, the people had not been given food initially. Apparently Wilford hadn't oh. come up with the idea of cooking 
cockroaches. And so they'd had to... Hold for one second. Okay, Richard, you're going to reveal that because that's a big shocker. That's a big revelation. But before that, I thought the secondary level revelation that you haven't mentioned was that Wilford is the guy that was sending the secret revolutionary messages. In, in well, in who jealousy. else could it be? He instigated his own counter-revolution. Yes, yeah. Or it, it, no, he he was he he was the counter-revolutionary that instigated the revolution. Incredibly, well, he's trying to control the population. Yes, isn't he? and so he knows that by having a conflict, people will be will be killed, and he thinks that will bring the number on the train down. So, revelation one is they're using child labor. Revelation two is. Uh, the revolution was instigated by the counter-revolutionaries. And Revelation 3, which I interrupted saying, saying, hold your horses here. What is the big thing, Richard? Well, it turns out that before they were given those protein blocks to live on, the poor people in the tail of the train weren't given any food and they resorted to cannibalism. They would eat one another. And yeah. Captain America, I think, was about to eat a baby. Yeah. It was Gilliam. It was... John Hurt's character, who offered up his own leg, I think cut his own limb off, and offered that instead of the baby. Yes. And I can't help thinking that, you know, if you were offered a nice, tender, warm, newborn baby or some old fella's <laughs> leg, you'd probably still go for the baby, wouldn't you? In a rule where in a world where rules did not exist, yeah, I think I think you'd go for the baby anyway, yeah. Oh, give me my newborn baby. But, so there's some nice symmetries that are closed here. I thought, we, we looked at a couple of movies before, didn't we? Uh, Mute, where there are symmetries closed in the way the plot develops. And uh, Curtis, he doesn't want to become a leader. Not Curtis, sorry, sorry. Uh, Captain America doesn't want to become a leader because he has two arms, you see. And at the time he says this, you think, ah, he's talking about making sacrifices, sacrificing an arm to, for other people. But actually, no, it's more fundamental than that. You know, he was going to, he bit off somebody's arm and that person became the leader. Uh, and so he doesn't feel worthy because he hasn't sacrificed himself and because of, you know, his somewhat weirwolfish uh, instinct to eat babies. Uh, so there were some symmetries closed with that one, uh, which I thought was nice. I know I'm on ethical and moral thin <laughs> ice here. No pun intended. Well, actually, pun intended. But if you're in a situation where the choice is between eating babies or eating parts of adults, you surely should eat the baby because it's really easy to make new babies and it's really hard to make to make adults. <laughs> Or is that is that not right? Would John Mill be... Yeah, it's been a bigger investment, isn't there? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, you don't want to destroy that investment you've put into that adult. I don't know. I think we're talking about in a hypothetical world where, you know, yeah. uh, aircraft crash into the into the snow, snow-tipped Andes. Do people become cannibals? Well, yes, they do. Uh, is that a moral? Is that a morally bad choice? No, it's not, I don't think. But for me, it was, it was not the fact that they ate babies. It's the fact that they saw eating cockroaches as being worse than that. That really really somewhat astounded me. It turns out at this point in the film that the Korean guy has had a plan, a master plan all along. Really? And I like this bit. I thought it was very clever because he's been watching the sort of progress over the years. They've been 17 years on this. Oh, yes. And he's been watching the progress of uh, the ice and stuff. And every year as they go over this bridge, he spotted this crashed plane and he's seeing that the ice is receding because he can see more and more of the plane. And his wife was an Inuit, he says. Every year they pass this point close to that bridge where some people had jumped out of the train (laughs) and tried to make a run from it and had frozen on the the hillside before they'd made it, you know, out of sight. And it, it serves as a sort of monument to the folly of leaving the train, the safety of the train. Yeah, And I think we're given to understand that his wife was in that, because she was telling him that you can live, you know, in the cold if you're an Inuit. And they've stolen. So him and his daughter have stolen the fur coats from the, yes. the bourgeoisie uh, uh, in the, the nightclub. He's going to use these uh, fur coats to, to go out into the snow and escape the train. Yeah. So he needs to get the door of the train open. Turns out that this chronol is an explosive and he's collected all of it. He's not really been taking it. Or ah, anymore. yes. He's got a load of chronol like plastic explosive. So he puts it on the door and the plan is to blow the way out of there and, yep. and escape. I thought this is really clever. 
it was really good, but at this point I had plot overload. So so I I I, I mean I, I took that in but I didn't remember it, yeah. But yeah, so nicely a nicely plotted movie that kinda keeps going a bit further than you might expect. You know, there's there's plenty of twists in this movie. But the only trouble is with this ending. Yeah. Which is bleak, I I think. Because ultimately what happens is they do destroy they do explode that bomb and blow open the hatch. But it's a very big bomb and it basically destroys the train. It derails train, it. Yeah. It crashes, and as so far as we can dead. tell, everybody on the train is dead. Is dead, with the exception <laughs> of the the Korean guy's daughter, the seventeen year old girl, and the little the black kid who was in the life, engine yeah. that um, yeah. Captain America rescued, and the polar bear. They've made a trade off here, haven't they? They've made a massive trade off. They've decided that in order to escape and get out off the train, which is a hellhole, of course, yeah, but still to get off the train, they've decided that they can kill the rest of humanity. <laughs> kill everybody. Yeah. And so that they can escape. And yeah, it's not a happy ending. They they see a polar bear. The suggestion is that we're supposed to think, oh, well, you know, life is returning or something. They seem happy about the polar bear being there. I'd run. It seems to me that what they are is polar bear food. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't run from a polar bear, Paul. No, a polar bear can easily outrun you. Really? The way you deal with a polar bear, apparently... Is you must back away slowly, wow. removing items of clothing and laying them on the ground in front of you. The smell. Because polar bears wow. are very curious animals, and they will stop to investigate each item. And you might hope wow. that it loses interest, or you've moved back into your vehicle, or you found a rifle, before the polar bear has reached you. <laughs> but you're probably going to just die naked. But that, that's what you should do. Don't run. They'll just chase you down. They they can smell for miles, can't they? I should imagine so, especially especially when you're shitting yourself. <laughs> so we've got to assume that all of humanity is wiped out in this movie, isn't it? You know, I mean, the polar bear's got to eat these two. And end of humanity. So you know this. Is Except an... that uh, in this um, Snowpiercer timeline, in the graphic novel and in the TV series, there are other trains. I think. Wow. So this is not the only train that is on this journey. Ah. That's news to me. Okay, so in summary, this movie is some sort of exercise in political science or political commentary of some sort. One, it's the insistence that we that maybe if this is a reflection on modern society, therefore there's the inference that we live in a very tightly structured class system, although we don't recognise it as such, but it happens to be very tightly controlled, and that class struggle is the only way forward. I think that's one conclusion. The other conclusion is that strong expedient compromise is a necessary conclusion to be drawn from any tightly controlled societies that some people must die, some people must sacrifice sacrifice themselves for a society that is hermetically sealed. But the third thing is, ultimately, they take, you know, is a decision to embrace freedom Fundamentally, the message, the final message of this movie is it kind of runs counter to the, the class, the group class struggle it had been suggested, that he had been suggesting it was about. But ultimately, the indiv- individual freedom is the most important decision one can make to essentially selfishly sacrifice the rest of the world for oneself. I, I didn't know what it was trying to conclude at the end or, or what it was actually trying to say. Any thoughts on this, Richard? What was the movie about it, from a political perspective? Yeah. Well, you can look at it in many ways, and I think that's a nice thing about the work of... Mr. Boone. I think that's a nice thing about the work of... I have to look his name up every time. Juno. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that it's, not, it, it's not black and white morality, yeah. is it? It's very grey, and there are different interpretations. I think you could easily look at this and say that the right thing to do would have been to sacrifice some personal freedom for the good of everybody which is sort of what the train was. Maybe you shouldn't shouldn't be mucking that up with your own <laughs> your own crazy personal freedom ideas. Uh, on the other hand, you could argue that it's a fate worse than death, isn't it? It's a living hell. And yeah. if that's what existence means, then people are better off choosing freedom and choosing choosing the freedom to die at the time of their own choosing or at the hands of a polar bear, as is your preference. <laughs> I'm not sure what Solzhenitsyn would have said about this, but I'm sure... He probably had something to say about it. Yeah, so uh, that grey area, that inconclusive area that it occupies, I think, as you say, is, is quite productive for a movie. You know, it's, it is a nice little think piece. You're left thinking, you're left debating these things for yourself because it doesn't explicitly state its position on these things. Yeah, it leaves quite a lot of slack and play 
for different ideas or different thoughts to develop about about what's been presented. Because I mean, some of it could be quite disturbing. I think for for some viewers, if if you were to take oh yeah, if you were to take it as being real rather than extremely fictional, or a suggestion that you know that this is how life could or should or might be lived, you know, it might be quite disturbing. But I I never really took it as that. It always felt quite quite fictional to me as 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 a movie. Did you feel it was like a reflection on real life? No, it's a hellish dystopia for people who grow up watching Thomas the Tank Engine, isn't it? <laughs> it's what Thomas did when he got when he grew up and and hit the crack crack pipe. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so yeah, I think we're reaching the point where we're going to give scores, aren't we? We do. We have to give scores to this movie. Uh, can I say to start off with, I really enjoyed this movie, and like you say, the director, Mister Boone, I think he's called talented i think really good yeah i also enjoyed this movie it was a a breath of fresh air after the other stuff we've been watching so well done for picking it man let's start with the acting the acting i thought was uh was good there was only one shonky area and that was uh, when captain america confessed to his cannibalism or his attempted cannibalism or to his attempted or or intended cannibalism of, 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 of baby body parts I thought that was really badly acted. He, he, he acted it as if it was like mild embarrassment uh, rather than, I don't know. I think if you'd done that, you'd either you'd shut down your emotions completely and, and there'd be this highly defensive confession or there would be something much more traumatic coming out. He didn't get any of that, you know. It was like his pants had fallen down in art class or something. So, But apart from that, I thought the acting sustained itself and... Yeah, I mean, they were quite, they were quite standard action movie roles that people were occupying. It wasn't, there wasn't much demanded of the actors, but what was demanded, they delivered. So, uh, an eight for me, actually, on the acting. Yeah, Tilda Swinton went really big, didn't she? Oh, she, she was, was great. She yeah. was really good to watch. Yeah, the, the scene you're talking about. I think was there a, was it in flashback? But he was talking to John Hurt about having an arm. I think John yeah. Hurt said something like, "You know, it's much better with two arms. Much better for holding a woman." Which is yeah. ironic and upsetting because he never gets to hold a woman, except perhaps at the very, very end where he holds the... Uh, they protect, don't they? The Korean guy and uh, Captain America protects the, the two kids when the bomb is going yeah. off. Kind of a suicide mission, yeah, yeah. So he never uses his extra arm. What a shame. So were you happy with the acting, Richard? Uh, yeah, no, the acting was very good, I think. Yeah, I'll give it a seven, marked down slightly, only for going a bit big for some of the characters, but uh, very good on the whole. Great. Now, how about the action and special effects? Nice action, obviously. Great fight scenes and stuff. One thing, the only thing I would say, some of the outside sequences, which were obviously CGI, looked very obviously CGI. I, I didn't yeah. buy them. You've got to accept that a, a world that is entirely frozen over and everything is snow and ice and stuff and a train bashing through the snow drifts. You know, I don't have any reference for that. I don't know what that really looks like, but he didn't often didn't feel too real. It just looked like watching a Not computer too game at times. No. Yeah. But other than that... On the other hand, I thought the action really stood up. On the whole. And it was very well choreographed. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to give it a six and a half. Yeah, I'll give it a six. It's certainly above average, yeah. And how about the science? Well, uh, once again, we have to say in a science fiction movie, there wasn't that much science. We had, we had cockroach-generated agar jelly... Uh, we had some stuff about a drug being an explosive at the same time, repurposed industrial waste. We had those really cool translators that they were using to speak to the Koreans. We had Google Translate, yeah. Which, yeah, we had Google Translate, yeah. Yeah, I guess, actually, yeah. In 2013, that may have sounded exciting, but nowadays, it just it's just quite normal, isn't it? It's just an app, yeah, these days. Uh, what else? Um, we had a train that never stopped moving, some sort of perpetual motion machine that wasn't explained. We had kids being machinery cogs in a machine. I don't know. There wasn't really any science there. We had speeds of trains that didn't work, and we had a rather tenuous tipping point occurrence that changed the entire climate of the Earth. Uh, I don't know, really. I'm going to have to give it a three. Oh, that's very harsh. Is it? I think this is above average. Oh, okay. I don't think it gets anything terribly wrong. So there's not a massive amount of it, but what it does, it does relatively competently. Okay. Yeah, okay, maybe I don't completely buy everybody being able to live on a train, and I don't buy yeah. that a train could keep running. I'll give it a five on okay. balance. I think that's fair. Okay, finally, how about the scripting and plot? And then 
storyline. Yeah, script, plot, storyline. I mean, obviously, this is taking a concept from an established graphic novel, which is a big cult following, clearly. Yeah. Really strong conceptual thing going on there. I think a lot of the story is greatly in service to that gimmick. You know, it can't be treated entirely as a realistic portrayal as a result of that. Yeah. But, you know, it's well-paced. It's, it's good. The dialogue is good. Tilda Swinton's character, again, fantastically written. So I've got to give it an eight, I think. I'd have to concur with that. One, there's some great lines in here. You know, the dialogue is crisp. And the other thing, compared to the movies we've been watching recently, is the pace. You know, this is well-paced. This is a movie that doesn't stop doesn't stop moving like a train. It hurtles forward. There's lots of twists. When you think you're getting towards the end, there's, there's one more thing turns up. And the way that the baddies come back time and time again in different ways, just great. You know, I think it, it appeals to a variety of age groups on a variety of levels. You know, it, it, it could be seen as a metaphysical reflection on, on the nature of existence. Could be seen as Viva Vendetta, Viva Vendetta kind of, you know, let's get one back on, on, on the rich guys. And then for the kids, there's lots of action too. So I thought it just the, the versatility of the script really works. So I'm going to give it a nine. Woo-woo! Which is high praise indeed. That's nearly full marks there. It is, yeah. Very much so. So overall... Yeah, we're coming to the station, the station which is called Overall Mark. Chug, 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 chug. We slow down. The steam is expelled from the engine. Yes, Richard, final marks. What about it? <laughs> uh, all of the elements... Sorry, just adding some thematic atmosphere there. Thank you. Uh, all of these different <laughs> elements come together really well. Uh, this is a much better film than some of the more recent ones that we've seen, isn't it? Oh, yes. In fact... Definitely. It's amazing that we don't hear more about this film. The idea sounds completely crackers. <laughs> a French graphic novel about everyone being stuck on a train and someone trying to get to the front. It, it's, a, it's a bit snakes on a plane, isn't it? It just doesn't sound it like is, it It's rather, yeah, yeah. But it really does work. It's much better than that elevator pitch could ever be i'm surprised it did not get more attraction and attention at the time but obviously there is a tv series now so maybe it was a sort of sleeper hit but yeah i'll give this an eight a very solid eight yeah i was gonna give it an eight but then because of the way it's pitched on various levels the ambiguity of potentially what the movie's trying to say about is sacrifice a few for the many acceptable uh should we accept constraints on personal freedoms you know Great, really. I loved it, what we was trying to discuss. Uh, so I'm going to give it a nine in total, because I just I thought this one rocked. Yeah. Thank goodness. Hey, well, uh, I wonder whether next week's movie is going to be as impressive. Well, is it your turn to present me with two choices, Richard? It is, it is. And I know you were saying we should go for more hard, hard sigh. Yeah. Than low sigh. It sounds like a buck coming. So I've got two suggestions. Oh. For the first time in the history of this podcast... I'm going to give you a choice. Oh my gosh. I have given two before, but I've insisted you watch both of them. <laughs> but this time, I'm going to give two. You can choose one and we'll watch one. How about that? Here's my first suggestion is a Chinese production, yeah. which I'm surprised you haven't seen already. Wow. Called Wandering Earth. Wandering Earth. Wandering Earth. One or the other. And what briefly is that about, Rich? For the benefit of myself, if not for our listeners. I'm not entirely sure. I think it must be about the Earth going out of Sun's orbit or something, for some reason. Yeah, they're migrating the Earth to Alpha Centauri. A little bit like Space 1999, where the moon got shot out of orbit and the people in the moon base yes. uh, ended up travelling around on the moon. But this is intentional. I mean, they're shooting so Earth out to Alpha Centauri, as opposed to Io, where they're shooting a rocket out to Alpha Centauri. Popular destination. <laughs> so that's choice number one. Choice number two. Number two. And I think it's a Netflix special. Yeah. Called Ark or ARQ. I don't know. I presume that's Ark. ARQ. ARQ. This is about a perpetual energy machine, isn't it? It's about two people, I think, stuck in a sort of like kind of lockdown situation. So it's a good lockdown movie. I'm hoping. Oh wow. Well, I think Earth. I think Earth being confined to space for however many years it takes to get to Alpha Centauri is kind of lockdown too. True. Yeah, it's going to get awful dark. So what's your final choice then? Look, I'm going to go for The Wandering Earth. Good. Bit of Chinese. Only because, you know, we, we've had South Korean. So I think we should continue on an Asian tip, so to speak. Go on to The Wandering Earth next week. Seatbelts on. Get ready for launch to Alpha Centauri. Clunk click every trip. Clunk click every... Here we come. Every, every several light year trip. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. So I'm actually looking forward to this because I'm sure it's going to be very different to most of the movies that we've seen so far. 
I think so. Well, uh, here comes the music along the train tracks. Woo woo woo! And see you next time. See you next, guys. See you next. See you next time, guys, for the wandering Earth. Is the music coming? It is. Here it comes. In three, two, two or one. one. Thank you.